Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Counter Narrative Project's Revolutionary Health. We got a lot of ground to cover today. I'm going to warn you some heavy, heavy, heavy discussions, but we're going to get through this together. So I'm really excited that you're here joining us for this discussion. I'm also with my colleague. I'm David Melbranch. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Okay. How are you going to introduce? Like, what's your oh, I'm a resident. I'm, a, I'm not resident physician today. <laughs> not resident I'm physician. just a doctor sitting at a table with Charles Stevens. That's all I'm doing. As I've often said, um, I'm Charles. I'm the executive director of the County Data Project. Johnny won't let me call myself the HNIC, so I'll just be the ED for today. Um, wow, we have so much ground to cover. First of all, how are you, David? How I'm you doing feeling? good. I'm doing good. I've had an interesting day. Have you? Dealing with passive aggressive people <laughs> and um, trying to get work done. I and, bet y'all can't relate to that. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So passive aggressive people are funny. And so I just try to not let them bother me and get a rise out of me mm -hmm. and just keep doing my work. Before we get into deep, I want to give folks a few more minutes to join us. Right. So, you know, relax, um, get comfortable, get something to drink, you know, get you know, make yourself, you know, because we got a lot to cover today. We're going to talk about some heavy stuff. Yeah, so. if you want to do wine or we'll do crown wine. apple and pineapple juice or honey and Coke, whatever you drink. <laughs> honey and Coke. <laughs> honey and Coke. <laughs> honey and Coke. Um, so let's do a roll call. Who do we have? Let's do a roll call. Who do we have so far? We have, I see Art Jackson. Hey, Art. Walter Vinson is in the house. Hey, Walter. Um. So yeah, definitely, uh, you know, relax, make yourselves comfortable, make yourselves comfortable. We got a lot to cover. So we're going to give folks a few more minutes to to get in the room, to get in the room. But David, you said you're dealing with passive aggressive people today. How yeah. Do you... do you want me to talk about the other stuff first? Like the text that I got and the information, like literally sure, I, I was on my it. way here. Go okay. We can introduce that while people are getting there. Okay. So I want to throw out to the people out there. Um, I got a text from a friend of mine who was having a surgery. Uh, at some point in the future, the near future, like within the next week or so. And he asked me if HIV testing was actually required before you go and get surgery because um, the surgeon notified the staff to tell mm. him that he was going to have to get an HIV test. They were asking him to get an HIV test before surgery. Now, my friend is HIV negative, um, but I guess he reported on some kind of history or they found out that he was, he was honest and said he had a history of syphilis in the past. So supposedly the surgeon is saying because he reported having a history of, of syphilis that he wanted to make sure he was checked for HIV. Uh, my friend is also black and gay. And so we had this elaborate discussion about <laughs> whether if it was Becky, who was white and hetero, admitted that she had syphilis when wow. she was younger, if a surgeon would be requiring her to get an HIV okay. test or whether the surgeon just saw him and said, black and gay, I want to make sure mm. it's HIV. But what it did, it brought me back to kind of the days and I went and did a lot of research about it and looked into it and found out that um, the occupational safety and health guidelines or mm. occupational and I'm sorry, OSHA, occupational OSHA. safety and health administration, they actually have guidelines like if a surgeon cuts themselves or if mm. a health worker sticks their finger and kind of what you do and what you typically do is you get an HIV test of the source patient afterwards. Mm. Like if a nurse is drawing blood on a patient and sticks his or her finger, you have to kind of wash it off. You may wash do post-exposure yeah. prophylaxis for HIV, which mm -hmm. involves taking HIV medications for about a month. And then you find out mm -hmm. from the source patient, like you, you get the consent for testing and you yes. see if they're HIV positive. But I'd never heard of someone testing for HIV beforehand. Mm -hmm. It sounded very discriminatory and random. Mm -hmm. um, the only study mm -hmm. I saw was from back in 95, 95 yeah. where they interviewed a bunch of doctors and the doctor said, oh, hell yeah, we want 
HIV testing before surgery because we don't know what our patients are coming in with. And that seemed outdated. Obviously, it's 23 years ago. We didn't have enough medication. We didn't have this whole undetectable, untransmittable yeah. thing that was going on. Um, but it just struck me as a little bit interesting. So my take home was that it seems like individual level surgeons and or doctors are making their own decisions mm. about whether they include. So when you go to get surgery or get a procedure done, they say we're going to get pre-op labs. Usually that involves getting a blood count, checking your kidneys, yeah. um, your blood thinning levels. It's called a PT and a PTT. Uh, but they usually don't require you to get HIV testing as a part of that. But just mm. be mindful if you're getting surgery that there are some surgeons out there that seem to be doing this arbitrarily without any evidence, without any science, without any recommendations. So it's just an interesting thing, but it seems very discriminatory to me. Mm. And what should someone do if they, they find that that's happening? Um, I mean, unless it's in the fine print when you're signing, mm. it says we can test you for anything we feel like it, which a lot of these hospitals are doing now. Unless you read through the whole thing, be careful of what you're signing off on because they are actually included when you walk into a hospital door to quote unquote normalize HIV testing, yeah. that that's going to be included with all the other labs. So when mm -hmm. you sign, you're giving consent for them, not only to do the regular labs and all the other testing, but, but in addition, that. HIV mm -hmm. is thrown in there. So, and that varies by state. Mm -hmm. And so certain states may not include that and they have people still sign a separate wow. consent form for HIV. But a lot of states are thinking, you know what, we're normalizing HIV. We want it to be a mm -hmm. part of all routine care, so we're including it in yes. there. But you can see where it's kind of, it may be being used to kind of discriminate, discriminate. in some cases. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I don't know if anyone has any thoughts mm -hmm. or whether they've heard of anything like that um, or whether their doctors have done that in the past with them, but I think it's an interesting thing to have a conversation about. Okay, I see some some other folks are join, have joined us. I see Anthony, Antoine, just doing a little roll call um, for folks in the room. Um, there's also Yakeem, I'm sorry for pronouncing that wrong. Um, but yeah, we are, we're live, we're ready to, to jump in. Thank sure. you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, and let me just say a little bit, uh, so much of the spirit of revolutionary health is about topics like that, to talk about health, not just about, you know, individual behaviors, mm -hmm. but about the larger structural considerations that very much shape the shape the environment that we exist in, it's particularly as black gay men. Right. So I really appreciate you sharing that story because um, there's so many stories like that about discrimination in the healthcare setting. Yeah, and it's something that just came up. So I think, you know, when these things come up, I try to, you know, we both try to vocalize them depending on what's going on. Mm -hmm. yeah. Hey, Jay Anderson, Jay Anderson Lester, see, Jay Anderson's joined us. Um, also, as always, in the comments, feel free to let us know what you think, uh, topics, questions you have for us that you want us to discuss. Just let us know what you're, what you're feeling. And also, please, 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 Make sure you, if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube and also like the video um, on Facebook or YouTube. Finally, you know, come join our CMP tribe, right? Yes, so yes. make sure you um, go to thecounternarrative.org to get on our email list. All right. Um, so I see four of y'all in here, but I don't think I see four likes. Okay, I see five likes. All right. <laughs> I'm calling y'all out now. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's just get started. Um, wow. I guess we should begin with, with Michael Johnson. Okay. So this is kind of breaking news, y'all. Um, as I said, this is going to be a pretty heavy a heavy evening. We have a lot of stuff to get through, a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, one of the things is uh, Michael Johnson, <clears throat> who many of us have been following, certainly. BuzzFeed, and I got to give a shout out to Stephen Thrasher, who's just done amazing, amazing reporting. Brother Stephen Thrasher's just done some incredible reporting on Michael Johnson. So, um, but according to BuzzFeed, Michael Johnson, the collegiate wrestler known as Tiger Mandingo, um, who was originally sentenced to more than 30 years in prison for reckless 
So Michael Johnson has been granted parole, his lawyers told BuzzFeed News. However, Johnson will remain incarcerated at the Boonville Correctional Facility until October 9th, 2019. Um, and this is basically six years after he was initially arrested um, for um, and put behind bars for, again, air quotes, knowingly exposing or transmitting HIV to, to male partners. So I just want to give a shout out to Stephen Thrasher for his amazing, amazing well um, reporting. Let me also say, um, you know, I'm honestly kind of ambivalent about the use of Tiger Man Bingo in the media. I think people that know me know that that's something I've been pretty vocal about, um, just my ambivalence about like the, the whole Tiger Man Bingo thing. And, right. But um, that's not neither here nor there for this current conversation. But um, the reason why we want to discuss this is obviously we can't talk about health without talking about, again, the, the structural and, and social considerations of health, including discrimination against, you know, people living with HIV. Right. Um, HIV stigma is so real, especially as it impacts our community. So, but, um, you know, I'm glad that the Michael is going to get parole. Yeah, I think so too. And I think, you know, the one thing, you know, Charles is being a little bit humble here, but Charles was spearheading a lot of the activism um, that was kind of working on getting awareness about Michael Johnson's case, what was happening with him and how unfair everything was. So um, Stephen Thrasher, great job on the writing, but also kudos to Charles for really like taking the mantle. Um, and picking picking the torch up and kind of carrying this to, to make sure that the injustices that were done to Michael. And wait a minute, um, though, David, because kudos to you, too, because when we were doing, I don't know if folks know this, I got to give a little history about this. So um, in part of the, as part of the solidarity efforts with Michael, we wanted to do an open letter from mm -hmm. Black Men, mm -hmm. just really expressing our love and support of Michael. And I really think that that letter that right. over 100 Black Men signed, right. um, was like a turning point in so. the in the campaign for a number of reasons. I think most critically, I think it put a lot of people on notice that had been sort of ignoring Michael and had not really been doing a whole lot. Right. It showed that Michael had a community standing behind him. Right. And David, oh my God, you're like one of the first people that took the letter, signed it. Like I was, you know, because when we when I was proposing it to people in terms of signing on to this this uh, open letter to Michael, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure how people would land. And I mean, you were like, I mean, when you. Put that letter on your Facebook. Oh my God, it was like so many people. Yeah, it it's was, like you put your social capital. Yeah, it was it was good. I just think you know the Michael Johnson case, and for those of you who aren't familiar with it, there's obviously a lot of stuff on the internet that you can look up about his case. Um, but it really mixed in a lot of issues of race, racism, um, kind of HIV discrimination, criminalization laws, and kind of masculinity, um, hookup apps, those kind of things, privacy, all this kind of stuff you know, uh, consent, disclosure of mm -hmm. HIV status in uh, consensual relationships. All these issues were kind of being mixed around um, in a very, like a perfect storm kind of thing. And he got thrown under the bus as kind of the scapegoat of all this. And I think because of his case, there's been a lot of mobilization around uh, changing some of the yeah. HIV criminalization laws, if not eradicating them altogether. And so it, it's it's good to hear. But he's been in prison for six years now. It's yeah, he's been in, well. He was uh, arrested, so he was in jail, and then he was he, in jail back then. And then, then he, he was, went to prison. Went yeah. To prison, yeah. So he's served six years already. Um, and so you know, having him get out next year will be a good thing because I think they'd given him like a thirty-year sentence, something like initially. That. Yeah, it was ridiculous. It was so. Like a whole. But yeah, definitely check out Stephen Thrasher's reporting on Michael Johnson, definitely this amazing reporting. Um, and also if we talk about the letter, I need to definitely make sure I shout out um, Kenneth Pass, this amazing student at Northwestern, just incredible. Uh, uh, Kenneth actually led the crafting of the letter. Right. And I wanna make sure that, you know, 
you know, graduate of Morehouse College, yeah. currently a, a student at Northwestern, a PhD program, and amazing, amazing soul. So I see a few other folks joining us. Uh, David, a lot of people are saying hey to you. <laughs> Hey, uh. um, I want to I highlight, Anthony is in the comments. Hey, Anthony. Anthony says, I experienced stigma with a close friend who was confirmed HIV negative, but three different doctors told him he must be HIV positive once in front of me and after an earlier doctor confirmed his negative status just the day before. Mm-hmm. Uh, duh, check the chart. Stop being lazy because you're, th- you're treating working with Black gay men. Oh, my God. And please, in the comments, thank you, Anthony, for sharing that. Feel free to share some of your experiences in the healthcare right. setting. I think I, um, I don't know if we talked about this. I had the experience. Um, I went to uh, the doctor with with my partner um, almost a year ago. He was um, going to do, uh, uh, what do you call it, like uh, like minor surgery. Mm-hmm. And it, it was so interesting how the the, the staff at um, John Hopkins, I mean, John Hopkins, um, Emory Hospital, were treating us, you know, and it was, I mean, it wasn't like harsh stigma, but it's like, they didn't quite know what to, what to do. Yeah. Two black men, you know, that side of, it's like, they just, it's like they had never seen a, a black gay <laughs> couple before. So it was just really interesting. Right. And but it happens, sure. unfortunately. So I think there's a lot of levels that the medical profession can discriminate. Absolutely. And that whole thing about, you know, someone arbitrarily requiring you to get an HIV test before surgery is just one of those avenues that one they of those do avenues, that. Yeah. Absolutely. This isn't, uh, perhaps directly related to health, but I mean, well, directly explicitly related to health, but David and I just thought it was important to just kind of check in. Um, and that's really about um, Timothy Cum- Cunningham. I know a lot of folks have been talking about Timothy Cunningham. It's um, definitely made its way all through social media. There's just a lot of unanswered questions. And the AJC, they actually have a piece just kind of breaking down the facts, like what we know and what's still unknown. Mm-hmm. And um, so just to give you a little background, so um, Timothy Cunningham, his body was discovered, um, tragic, you know, it was all very tragic and really heartbreaking. Um, a fisherman, a fisherman spotted, um, his body Tuesday night in the Chattahoochee River. So I guess like last Tuesday, it was in a remote, remote area, not easily accessible. According to firefighters, right. the body was face up in muddy water. And I'm just going to like warn you, some of this is kind of graphic. Right. Um, medical examiners used dental records to identify the body as Timothy Cunningham. And an autopsy found no signs of trauma or evidence of underlying medical condition. And drowning drowning was believed to be the cause of death. Um, Cunningham was found four miles from his home and was wearing his favorite running shoes. But he did not have his house keys. He did not have his cell phone or any other personal items. Cunningham also knew how to swim. So that also makes the the drowning just seem very um, precarious. Mm -hmm. Um, What we don't know. So we don't know. Okay, so according to the AJC, this is what we don't know. Did Cunningham leave his home and intend not to return? And I know we talked about that right before we started the live. How did he end up in the river and where did he access it? And was the drowning an accident or was it intentional? So those are just some of the questions that are lingering. And I mean, ultimately, we wanted to just kind of raise this because, well, you know, it was also talking about loneliness like last week. Right. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to speculate or anything about Timothy Cunningham. Like, that's not what this is this is about. But we just wanted to just kind of hold space and just realize that there are people that I know this is going to be triggering for folks. And so we just kind of wanted to, like, hold space for that and just realizing that a lot of people have a lot of feelings. And it's probably very triggering for a number of reasons for people. Yeah, and I think um, it's really sad. My condolences go out to his family, yeah. uh, especially what they went through, because it was mm-hmm. about four weeks that he was missing. Four weeks, more than yeah. that. Um, and they had to deal with that uncertainty before they found out what's going on. And so, uh, 
hopefully all his friends and family, you know, can be somewhat comforted about knowing at least some of what, what happened and that yeah. there's some resolution to it. But it's just, I think for me, you know, you're talking about how to tie it into, you know, um, black men's health, black gay men's health. And I don't know, I don't speculate about yeah. Timothy's sexual orientation, so I yeah. don't know anything about that. But I think one of the underlying themes, um, regardless, is about checking in on one another. Checking in. And I think the narrative I was seeing a lot in social media and among my friend circles were that, you know, oh, this brother really had it all together. He was CDC uh, epidemiologist, you know, good looking cat, you know, had his stuff together, well educated. Um, and I think we have that thing all the time that's a common trope that we talk about with the counter narrative a lot is that you know there are these you know a lot of us as black gay men people look at us from the outside and think mm -hmm. oh you have this position or you're doing this and mm -hmm. so everything is yeah. together and we tend not to check on each other yeah. and so there are times when you know all of a sudden you find out somebody died or someone mm -hmm. had surgery or someone mm -hmm. went through some medical thing and yeah. you're like oh my god you know like what happened i didn't know that happened or oh my yeah. god, how could that have happened to him and mm -hmm. it's it's one of those things where we kind of isolate ourselves we get into our own thing yeah. we don't let other people know about some of the medical conditions we may have we don't let other people know about the stresses and the mental health issues we may be facing yeah. or what may be going on. And again, I'm not saying that Timothy was going through any of those things, but it just brought to me some yeah. of those ideas about, you know, how we don't know about each other unless we know. check in with each mm -hmm. other and unless we take time to kind of say, how are you doing? What's going on? You know, is everything okay? Those kind of questions. Even if you think somebody is the strongest person on the face of this Absolutely. planet, um, they need to be checked in as well. And so that's our charge, like counting narrative family. I'm charging you. Make sure that you check on people this week. Check if there's somebody that's been in your life that you haven't heard from or somebody in the community that you haven't seen around. Please check on them. Please check on them. Um, even if just sending a text or just a Facebook message or whatever, ideally call, mm -hmm. you know, if you can't call or even mm -hmm. like have coffee. Strongest ones. That's the strongest the, ones. The people that you mm -hmm. think are or the ones that are always taking care of everyone else or the people that never complain mm -hmm. and just do 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 for everyone else check up on them how are you doing are you okay mm -hmm. and i guarantee you that person will try to switch the conversation back <laughs> on to you they'll be like you say hey how are you doing they'll be like i'm good how are you david i'm right here how are you gonna throw shade at me I'm no right it's not you here. but it's not the, <laughs> but they, they won't want to take that on because yeah. <laughs> because they don't want to they don't want to talk about their own self so they put it right back on you and actually i wasn't even thinking about you but now that you're saying it you're right you actually do do that but like i have a lot of other friends that are really nurturers and they take care of everyone else so when you ask them and check up i think folks get surprised yeah. and some there are a lot of black gay men out there we're taking care of our families we're we're in our house we're serving as uncle mm. to our nieces and nephews um we're caretakers for our parents we're uh financial you know oh, yeah. people that's, we're the mm -hmm. co-worker that's mm -hmm. always available mm -hmm. when so-and-so has to pick up her kids for <laughs> um for the dance recital mm. or the ballet recital right and so right. we deal with a lot of things and so the reflex is when someone says gee how are you doing you usually just say oh i'm good how are you and then bring it back to you because they're so surprised that yeah. someone's actually checking yeah. in on them so if you have a friend like that and they give you that reflex push back oh i'm good how are you don't let them do it say, okay tell me more like shut up with that like i'm talking really how are you doing is everything okay wow or is there anything stressing Absolutely. you out and then you'll see sometimes those things kind of those walls kind of come down a little bit but you have to push a little bit but it's worth the effort especially with someone that you care about absolutely and i find that there's this sort of intellectualization of vulnerability and you know it's sort of like all these very heady conversations about oh we need to be vulnerable but that's to me where the rubber meets the road like can you 
actually have that conversation? Like, right. Can you call, reach out to someone and really check on them and, and ask how, and genuinely mean it? Right. Um, I think that can make such, such a huge difference. And how can they be vulnerable if you mm -hmm. don't check in on them? Absolutely. And if they're used to, if their role in everyone's life is always being the strong one, mm -hmm. they don't know. Maybe they're, they're not wired to, yeah. to be vulnerable and they don't know how it's done or how it's supposed to be operationalized. So they just, their reflex is just, I'm going to check on everybody else. So yeah, yeah. check on, on, on your friends, everybody. Yeah. Check on them. That is, that's the assignment. Check on your friends, check on even people, you know, you know, again, even people on the community that, cause I think that happens a lot too, where you'll be a part of an organization or you'll be a part of a group mm -hmm. and there's somebody that's really active and they're there all the time. And then they just stop coming and stop showing up. Right. And a lot of times we don't even inquire about them. It's like, we just, you know, Nope. Let it go. So nope. I think that's so important. Um, I see Walter. Um, I want to um, shine, shine some light on Walter. He's um, made a point about the early discussion we're having about the um, this discrimination. Right. Walter says, when I was in culinary school, the board had to have a meeting about me and my HIV status. They had never knowingly had a positive student. They weren't sure if it was 100% safe having me in the teaching kitchen in, in case I cut myself. I wound up having to educate and inform them. They ultimately just wanted to avoid any lawsuits or liabilities, mm -hmm. but I was just trying to get an education and not let my status be deterrent. Thank mm -hmm. you so much, Walter, for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you, Walter. Um, yeah, I think we have to keep pushing back when that happens. We have to keep pushing back. So whether you're living with HIV, whether you're not, and someone's mm -hmm. just discriminating against you because you're black and gay, and they're making all mm -hmm. kinds of assumptions, we have to push back about those systems because mm -hmm. those systems are put in place by people and they respond if someone says, I'm going to sue you or you're discriminating against me, you <laughs> oh, yeah. need to change that. Oh, yeah. um, you bring a lawyer into the case and all of a sudden you see how quickly policies can change. Mm -hmm. But it usually only takes one person to be able to do that. So don't think you have to be on the board or you have to get a whole petition together. It usually can just be you if you're motivated. So good job, Walter. Good job, good job, good job. Um, another topic that I wanted us to address was- Your voice got real, real low. It got real low. <laughs> <laughs> It's about to get real heavy. What? Um, yeah, so I wanted, so um, Juno Diaz wrote this beautiful essay in The New Yorker, mm -hmm. and he shared an experience um, about being raped as a young boy. And I know on my Facebook and social media, it opened up a lot of conversations about involuntary sexual debut and, and just the range of ways that, um, you know, uh, you know, particularly boys of color mm -hmm. are vulnerable to sexual um, violence in various mm -hmm. forms and not really being uh, much of a discussion around that, although it's increasingly obviously been the case. Um, David, I know you've done a lot of research or you've done research on um, black, black gay boys and, mm -hmm. and, and um, being a molestation. I was just wondering if we could talk a little bit about. Yeah. Like, some of the... Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of literature out there. Um, the, the study that I've, published, it was a while ago, it was probably about mm -hmm. 12 or 13 years ago, yeah. um, with Sel Sheldon Fields, shout out to Sheldon and uh, mm -hmm. Sonia Fleece Price, mm -hmm. um, who was at the University of Kentucky at the time. Um, we both, we all did three separate qualitative studies with different samples of black gay men. I think Sonia's was um, bisexual, uh, Sheldon's was a little bit younger in New York, and mine was kind of middle-aged, like 30s to 40s in Atlanta. And we weren't even asking about childhood sexual abuse specifically, mm -hmm. but we found that in each of our samples, which was about 30 men apiece, that about um, 
30% of the sample, one third of the sample reported having a history of childhood sexual abuse. And we published the data, we kind of pulled everything together, but then we started to look at some of the literature that we saw. There wasn't much out there specifically with black gay men, mm. but then we started to see more quantitative studies come around that were saying anywhere from 15% to 30% to 40% in some situations. Mm. And I can tell you, even as you were saying this, it just reminded me anecdotally, I recently um, came across a brother who was a patient of mine yeah. and it was billed as a visit to me to just uh, give some positive uh, sexually transmitted infection lab result. So it was like, oh, you have to give this lab result, you'll treat him, blah, 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 blah. And then when I started talking to him, he started to explain to me that um, he had been abused recently within the past year wow. and then had been sexually assaulted multiple times when he was a child. And I didn't want to let him go because we wanted to address that. And I had one of the therapists come over and kind of sit down and talk with him and get him plugged in. But it was already traumatizing enough that he had this STI diagnosis mm -hmm. and he was now going to get treatment. He was happy that it was, um, it was a curable STI. Mm -hmm. But yeah, imagine the trauma of going through that and then it kind of opening up some other state. And the amazing thing about it was that he kept saying to me, um, I'm okay, I'm okay, it's all good. You know, I kind of went through some depression, but I'm okay. And he kept pushing it off like it wasn't a problem and then telling me all the shit that he had been through. Mm. And I was like, dude, you've been through a lot. Like, mm. have you talked to anybody about it? And he was like, no, I'm good. And he had all these plans kind of laid out. And I was thinking mm. to myself, like the walls we put up to kind of um, guard against this yeah. um, and to deny that this happened and to kind of yeah. suppress it when we can, especially all that stems from when, you know, a, a lot of us will go through sexual abuse and then go to a parent. Uh, mother or father or relative and say, hey, so-and-so abused me. Yeah. And the parent will say, no, you're lying. You're not mm -hmm. telling the truth and then turn them away. So I've heard a lot of stories, both in research settings, clinical settings, as well as with friends of mine, mm -hmm. where they've had similar situations. And it's not just a one-time deal. Like the sexual abuse that goes on with a lot of black gay men that we see is repeated. Mm -hmm. And it's usually a family member that's the perpetrator. It's not somebody that... Um, is not available or it's not some kind of like forensic files or some kind of you know romanticized law and order svu episode mm -hmm. where it's some stranger that does it it's a family member that has mm -hmm. close access has gained trust that the family all loves and when this child is trying to say hey look i'm being abused everyone says no that can't be you know so-and-so family member is such a good person mm -hmm. they would never do anything like that and so the the child carries that trauma and then learns through mm -hmm. learned conditioning to basically say no one's going to listen to me. Why do I say anything? And then they mm -hmm. show up in our offices and there's a lot of literature that talks about yeah. victims of childhood sexual abuse mm -hmm. have higher risk for HIV later on. Um, sexual behavior wise, we mm -hmm. have more sexual partners, some other things. So the laundry list goes on about how mm -hmm. traumatic these events are and how they mm -hmm. lead to behaviors as adulthood, especially when we don't cope with them or we mm -hmm. try to suppress them and act like they don't happen. And then all of a sudden it will just come up out of the blue in the strangest of moments. I even had a friend of mine who is um, a little bit older than I am who disclosed to me that he had been abused when he was a child and it just came up in some kind of random situation oh when gosh. he was going through some other stuff and he had suppressed it for so long oh he gosh. forgot that it even happened. Wow. So these things do happen and they get triggered at the slightest of things. So again, kind of the importance of checking in on one another, um, making sure if you see something wrong with one of your you know, adopted uh, biological family members. That's what I, I mean, that's what I, I would call ourselves. Yeah. Like who, the brothers that you adopt as your family, your brothers, your mm -hmm. uncles, your nephews, your sons, your dads, 
um, in these gay families that we create, like check in on each other when something seems a little bit strange or when they're acting a little bit funny, or even when they're not, yeah. just be able to say like, hey, I'm checking in, is everything okay? Or has that ever happened to you if, if a topic comes up? And like asking each other, the same way, like sometimes you say, nobody asked me if um, if I'm on prep or what am I doing? <laughs> like no one checks in on that. Yeah. If you think we're not asking you about prep, yeah. Like, I was raped at six years of age or eight years of age, and that was a very powerful essay. I didn't get to read the whole thing. Yeah. I want to go back to it, but I read about half of it, and it was it was beautifully written and haunting, haunting um, yeah. because of what he was going through and kind of what he was having to Absolutely. to grapple with. You know, and I'm, I think another thing, another issue that we don't talk a lot about is the ways that I think a lot of black gay boys are targeted in a way. You know, like there's like a surveillance, like, and it's like, I don't think you're always aware that you're being, especially, and maybe it's a Southern thing, but, you know, looking back, and I've had this conversation with other friends, it's like, you just feel so surveilled, and so targeted, and so visible, and like, mm-hmm. you know, adult, and adults are watching, mm-hmm. they're like paying attention, and mm-hmm. they're checking you out, and I think that's where a lot of it happens, like, I think there's something um, that, where, like, I think sometimes Black boys are kind of preyed upon, right. because they're maybe seen as being, like, like, maybe disconnected, or, or they might be able to take advantage of like you know they might be perceived as like being bullied mm-hmm. and that can be an entry point so there's there's all this stuff. like i'll never forget when i was 12 years old um there was a family friend mm-hmm. uh, i guess you could say um a minister actually and he wanted me to spend the night with him like he wanted me i was like 12 and he wanted me to spend the, and, and he was like really smart he was like this sort of intellectual mm-hmm. um brilliant man brilliant man um so smart and I was like just completely captivated by that because he knew all this stuff about the Bible. And I was like a little church boy back then. And I told my mama that he wanted me to spend the night, like asked if I could spend the night. And it to me it seemed completely innocent. I was like, oh, he just wants my mom was like, nope, Mm-mm, nope. <laughs> she was like, you think um, she knew? And we oh, she I think she discerned some stuff that I couldn't discern quite yet. Right. Or maybe she was just like, Why would you spend the like why you, no with a grown ass man? Not, well, he was married and you know. Right. right. Um and then later on, I will, yeah. So there's another, there's a more backstory that I won't tell right now, but right. nonetheless, my mother was like, no. And I I'm so and I think about that intervention, like how many, you know, what if she hadn't said no? Um, you know, what if she hadn't? And so yeah, it, it's like there's just a vulnerability to, to like I think a lot of black folks, especially in the South, and I'm just constantly reminded of that. Right, right. But it's it's very traumatic, and I think there are a lot of brothers that you know go around and struggle with it every day. I think the first thing a lot of us need to do if you're struggling with that is reach out to a friend or like we're saying before check in on our friends yeah. and see if some that but for for the victims who have gone through this yeah. like it takes a lot of strength to disclose to a family member or even Absolutely. your best friend like it's yeah. so traumatic because it opens up a whole bunch or people. partner yeah too. or partner and someone yeah because yeah, it it impacts like how you interact yeah. sexually Total. romantically intimacy how that's Absolutely. defined for you um how sex is operationalized mm-hmm. for you where you like it what you don't like doing what you do like yeah. doing um if certain touches bother you like those kind of things can happen but the conversations need to be had for some of that healing to begin um and so it's, it's just a very challenging thing but i would never i never underestimate the trauma that a lot of brothers have gone through um being victims of childhood sexual abuse yeah. um and how hard it is to discuss that People really carry these yeah. secrets with them for years, Absolutely. decades, yeah. decades. Yeah. So um, we have to make the culture one that's a little bit more open to talking about these kind of things, not as judgmental um, and more supportive. Mm-hmm. 
Walter says the psychological ramifications of childhood sexual assault has myriad has a myriad of after effects and doesn't have one look. Uh, promiscuity and drug use for some, but by no means the only. Thank right. you, Walter. Absolutely, Walter. Um, Yakim says, unfortunately, families of color typically do not encourage or respect an understanding towards mental health. It's most definitely learned and difficult to rectify. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'll, I, so much of the work of the Counter-Narrative Project is just really about having the conversation and creating mm -hmm. space. So please, 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 let's just continue having a conversation. Let's continue to 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 make these issues visible because I think it, it saves lives when you're able to, to share these stories. Um, the final topic that I would hope that we discuss is about shade. Uh, <laughs> I, I just had this provocative thought. I was like, you know, what are the what are the ramifications of shade? You know, you know, it's like become kind of like a sort of um, right. Like it's in right. pop culture. It's like everybody's throwing shade. You know, right. but I'm like, well, what does it really mean? like? What do we mean by that? And right. like, what are the implications? So. Um, to give you some more context, thank you, David Watson, for liking the video. Um, so many of us, I think, go into community thinking it's going to be mm, right. like this very affirming, like, you know, we show up and it's like, oh, Charles is here. You know, when you first come into, especially Black gay community, you, you, a lot of us think that it's going to be, got like your cheers or something. There's like, a big like, party, there's <laughs> balloons. A parade, out, maybe, right. like you've arrived. You came out. Congratulations. Congratulations. You get an orientation package. Right. It's, it's like, right. But that's not really the experience mm -hmm. for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. Many no. of us might experience a kind of, um, we might perceive ourselves experience a lot of rejection mm -hmm. when we first start entering Black, especially social social spaces, um, or even online, really. Right. Like I think <clears throat> to talk about shit is also to talk about rejection in a sense, like a sort of feeling of collective rejection. Right. And one of the things I understand about Black gay men and even myself included, is that we are very sensitive to reject social rejection. Oh we are extremely don't not remember somebody's name, right. don't remember like we're very sensitive. And it's very triggering for us, obviously, because I think so many of us come from that's so much but so much a part of our journey. Right. And you know, I've seen like sort of like some organizations try to do stuff like, oh, this is gonna be a shade-free zone and stuff like that. <laughs> but I don't think we've ever really kind of wrapped our brains around like what it what it means to really create affirming right. spaces. And I just, yeah, and so I just um, wanted to have a little discussion about that. Like, what are your thoughts? My do, thought, um, do, you, do you throw shade? Well, I, shade? no, I don't know if I'm as good as shade, but I, I do think what's interesting is that generationally, and now in this day and age, it's not just generation, so I wouldn't just say millennials are, you know, taking shade to another level. Uh-oh. They could be. They'll start nothing. But who knows? But like baby boomers <laughs> throw shade, Generation X throw shade, millennials throw shade. I just think it's the venue through which the shade is thrown. Like back in the day, it would be an epic beatdown at the club or on the streets yeah. or outside or in a restaurant or whatever the venue may be that you do it to somebody's face. Now the shade is all thrown through the internet. And so whether you throw somebody shade on Jack or Grinder or you throw somebody shade on Instagram, Snapchat or Facebook or whatever it is, people mm -hmm. do that. I, I think for me, um, we all have times where we get very defensive. Yes. If we feel like someone's coming um, for you, you're automatically going to fight back. It's like we're, we could be cornered animals because we're used to being traumatized. We're used, we're, yeah, we're used to being uh, ridiculed or used to being discriminated against. So we get a whiff of that, especially from one of our own. We're just going to lash out immediately. Yeah. And so it becomes very hurtful. Yeah. And I, I think the thing for me is that I remember a long time ago, there used to be a magazine called Arise Magazine. Oh, Arise. I wrote for them one time. Exactly. So shout out to Glenn Alexander and MacArthur Flournoy, who created <laughs> that amazing, amazing. And they asked me, I was do I did a health column for them. Arise. And, yeah, Arise, exactly. And at one point, I 
they wanted to discuss like coming out of the closet or coming into a black gay community. What does mm -hmm. that mean? And I wrote the title of the piece that I wrote was coming out to what? And so oh. I was questioning kind of what are people coming out to? And I don't believe in coming out of the closet as kind of that social paradigm that everybody makes it out to be. I think it's got a lot of flaws and I think people can just be who they are and disclose or invite people in as Darnell Moore said about inviting someone into your space rather than coming out of something that's automatically deemed as pathological. Um, but I also thought we're encouraging all these people to disclose their sexual orientation, to tell everybody that they're gay. And if you do the kind of white gay Dan Savage thing and say, what's the famous slogan? It gets better. And it doesn't always get better. So with all due respect to Dan Savage, like you can't just do a little catchphrase and say, oh, honey, just come out of the closet. It's going to get better because for a lot of black gay children, there are a lot more important things that are going on in our lives outside of just coming out of the closet. And then if you come out of the closet and say you're not of the typical kind of masculine, skinny, aesthetic, uh, cute boy aesthetic that everybody has, you're coming out to a whole lot of discrimination, a whole lot of bullshit, a whole lot of ridicule, a whole lot of shade. And so, you know, what are we telling people to come out to? Um, should the message be to come out of the closet or somehow find a space where you can be affirmed of your sexuality so you feel comfortable in that? Because this kind of rote thing of just saying, come out of the closet, I don't really know what that means anymore. And if what we're coming out of the closet to is so shady <laughs> and kind of full of a lot of negativity well, sometimes, I, guess, I, I, I see yeah. some people like not wanting to quote unquote, come out, whatever that means at all, because they'd rather spend time with their friends or by themselves rather than put themselves through the shade and ridicule and the games and the quick queen snaps that a lot of people will, will do in the gay community that we have. I guess for me, I was, I, I guess I was like really committed to building a community that affirmed me. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, you know, I, I hear so many stories, especially, you know, from brothers in Atlanta and DC and New York and all those places about how, you know, how horrible the, the scene is and how, you know, and all that. And I, it's something I hear a lot and how difficult it is navigating it. Right. But I think, I mean, from the time I was 18 years old, I, I just was like, I wanted to find a tribe that I felt affirmed me and valued me. Um, how did you, know, you do that? Like, how did you? A lot of it was, a lot of it was, a lot of it was trouble to do that. A lot of it was trouble. Well, I wanted to survive, you know, right. and I was definitely, you know, I mean, I was talking about how, like, for a lot of activists, you see them on the other side, and you know, they act like they've always been these sort of like black men loving black men, as, you know, like super activists. But we ain't all, you know, we ain't always, you know, we've all had our journeys. Right. I mean, I remember praying that I wasn't gay and like being struggling with it and thinking I was going to go to hell. So mm -hmm. I'm like, I know what it's like to to come out of that, right, mm -hmm. and to to be in that space. So for me, once I got out of that, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be happy. Like right. I'm gonna find joy. So I really started to, and it was trial and error. Like I mean, I, I even stuff like, you know, I didn't want to have friends that belittled me. Right. You know, like I think in a lot of, maybe in a lot of spaces, and I, I, I by no means do I think it's specific to to black community, but I'm always alarmed, if not appalled, at the normalization of like the sort of verbal abuse like how, it's mm -hmm. like i'm just like mm -hmm. really y'all just playing but you mm -hmm. just said you know mm -hmm. none of that i was like i'm not having that right and so i just started making choices about like wanting friends that like inspired me and built right. me up and right. you know and being around community so i i don't know like i i just think that i mean everyone's journey is their own journey but but how would you tell like supposing there's some young brothers in some rural areas or some areas where they're not affirmed where they don't have a lot of other black gay men who are out there and they know that some of the things that they see in these social spaces are just kind of 
catty or racist or homophobic, or if it is a black gay community, it's very shady. Like what advice would you give them as far as what they can do to kind of get out of that? Because you seem to be very intentional about your stuff. Well, let me, and you let had me some be, kind let of internal clear. locus with that. But... <laughs> let me be clear. It wasn't always perfect. I mean, there's no, always it's not saying it's perfect, but you know, for somebody who's watching. I think self-awareness is the most important thing that you can have. And right. if something doesn't feel good, change it. Um, if you can, or at least start the process for, so I realize that, you know, you can't always immediately change your surroundings, right. but start a process. Right. Um, sometimes surrounding yourself with things that are affirming are like, I mean, I was like, I was so obsessed with finding even messages and books and online stuff. Like I remember when I was 18 years old, like reading about like the national, what was it? The national black lesbian and gay leadership forum. Mm -hmm. And like, I just was just really just trying to find anything that like affirmed me or inspired me, writers, music, um, just, and that's kind of where it starts. Like sometimes, I mean, I think for a lot of us, before we are able to find people community, we find like music community. Mm -hmm. So they're like singers or artists that resonate for us. So we find writer community. Like I remember, you know, like I, I'll never forget when I sort of came out, came out, <laughs> I was like 18 and I, you know, because I don't do nothing small, I came out publicly <laughs> in, in the media. And after that, I was like, what the hell did I just do? <laughs> and I picked up a copy of Brother to Brother, mm -hmm. edited by Essex and Phil, mm -hmm. and just started reading it. Mm -hmm. And just, and it made me feel like what I what I did was right, right or it right, felt good. Right. But I mean, everybody's journey is different. Right. Oh, we have some comments. Let me just hold up some comments. Um, Yakim says, admittedly, there are a lot of gay men that glorify shady behavior. But I think that just boils down to who you choose to be around. If you find that someone is constantly negative towards you or other people, then you know they are not for you. Rudeness and disrespect, especially if we don't have a genuinely playful relationship, is not cute. Exactly. That's great exactly. advice. That's, That's amazing great advice. advice. If it doesn't feel right, like yeah. step away from it. I think a lot of people who watch, a lot of people, I remember myself, yeah. like dealing with a lot of people that were verbally abusive or just mm -hmm. negative all the time. And it's hard to walk away, especially yeah. when there's a certain level of comfort. And they'll you, gaslight you too. Yeah. Like, why are you, you being a, so sensitive? Yeah. Why you have a level of investment in mm -hmm. people. There are certain people that are there to, they're trying to tear you down. So if it doesn't feel right, or if it isn't something you would do to somebody else because it's mean and hurtful, step away from it. Just know that you have the agency to do that. Absolutely. Uh, Walter says, I'm gay, but I am a black and a geek. I'm black and I'm a geek first. Come on, black. That's geek. what I bond with my friends. <laughs> All right, the blurred community. Come I on, say that I was like, I'm like the OG of blurred. I'm the OG of the black black nerds. Like I was doing it before it was cute. Um, but thank y'all so much for being with us this evening. Um, this was a good conversation. It was. Thank you for the comments. Love y'all so much. As always, please make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, definitely like us on Facebook and um, join our email list at thecounternarrative.org um, so you can stay connected to the CMP tribe. Mm -hmm. um, David, do you have any closing? No, nah, just send any ideas, any thoughts, comments, uh, topics you want to cover. Yeah, what do you want us like to talk that? about like next week? Yeah, let us know. We can kind of write that down, scribble that down for next week. But <laughs> Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Unless something... Happens, happens and one of us is not going to be around one of the three of us won't be around or two of the it's three the, of us won't be around the, the power with the power of three power you know. of three but we'll thank you johnny johnny's in the background johnny's our amazing uh like he's just a man like has 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 it all going on back there get thank it, you thank you get it johnny all right y'all thank you so much talk to y'all later see you next week see you next week